0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: All right. uh, Today is uh, Tuesday, uh, September 7th, 2021. I'm here today with Professor Anya Shortland, uh, who's a professor of political economy at King's College London. Um, Anya, Thank you very much for coming on. I'm so pleased to, to have this interview with you, Pete. You were the last external guest that we had at, at uh, GMU prior to the COVID shutdown. And uh, in fact, we still are not having external guests this semester, hopefully starting next semester in, in January. Um, but how has uh, everything been working for you these past 18 months?
2: I feel so blessed that we did have that visit in February 2020. Uh, it was the highlight of the year, and then I put my head down and wrote my book. So yeah. it's worked out absolutely fine. But I did have that, um, that uh, burst of enthusiasm coming from George. <laughs>
1: <Mason>. <laughs> well, we're fascinated, as you know, you know, with your various works, and today we're going to focus a lot on on this. Uh, the art loss registry and and the discovery you have of the mechanisms that's involved in that. But before we get into that details of your most recent book, like how did you get interested in illicit markets in general? Um, You know, it's not every, every economist studies uh, kidnapping or uh, lost art and and how to have mutually beneficial exchanges in such environments. So how, how did that pique your interest?
2: My background is actually in engineering. So I like things that work. And if things work beautifully, I like to tease them apart. So when I first started reading economics, people said, oh, well, markets work because somebody allocates property rights. And then there is a system of rules. And then we just let people trade. And if things go wrong, then there is a state that puts things right. And I thought, okay, well, that makes intuitive sense to a white, middle-class, nicely brought-up girl. Um, (laughs) That was how I experienced life. And when I started looking around the world, in particular Somalia, um, I thought, there's no state here, and yet people are building houses, they've got mobile phones, they're trading, they're trading at long distance. Clearly, states are not really all that necessary in... um, facilitating markets, so that's piqued my interest, and I started studying piracy and kidnapped for ransom because I thought, well, we can take away the state, you can even work underneath the radar of the state, and somehow you still get really wonderfully functioning markets yeah and with my art project, I found out that even if you model up property rights,
3: yeah
2: you can still get markets so. I'm just relaxing all of these assumptions of economics 101. Yeah. And seeing what's possible, teasing things apart and uh, finding out why they work, but what makes them
1: work? Well, you're an extremely engaging writer and thinker. In fact, I can't recommend your books highly enough to the audience here, Um, but they also read. Like a detective novel, <laughs> this most recent uh, book. I, I spent a lot of time this summer reading on the beach, uh, reading uh, your your you know this book as it came out, and I'm just fascinated with the details about how illicit markets actually work and uh, the self governance mechanisms that you're underlying uh, in the shadow or not in the shadow of the state, as you just pointed out. So. You know, when you get together in a project like that from an engineering mentality, which is trying to understand governing dynamics, then you fill in this beautiful narrative. How did you decide to pursue that kind of research as opposed to, say, normal economist speak of modeling and measuring kind of idea? I just
2: really like finding out how things work and if you ask people how they do stuff they gift you stories they tell you what they do they give you examples and that's what's been my my job but also my joy yeah that I've been endlessly interviewing people who are really really good at what they do tell me how they do things and give me their impression of, of of why things work. But then they also tell me, but I don't do this. X does that. You need to talk to X as well. And I get another view of the same problem from, from a different angle. And they said, oh, but Zed is also doing really important things. I couldn't do what I do without Zed. So I kind of get passed around in these communities of, of experts and um, at some stage, more mature scholars, quite possibly you said, this looks all very Ostromian to me. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. and
2: you, you see these systems are, are fitting together um, with, with, with different experts governing different aspects of these markets, relying on others. You see the structures and the rules that are governing their interactions. But, yeah, at the end, is really very curious engineer who's pulling out a thread.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: I was very intrigued, you know, by this market. Just my interests were peaked before your book. I watched this movie with Helen Mirren, uh, which is about the rediscovery of a uh, stolen piece of art from the Nazis and then the reclaiming of it for the family and, and the battles that took place and everything like that. And so in the in the uh, in your book, um, you sort of uh, talk about the evolution of this art loss registry, um, which is actually relatively recent. The puzzle, it goes back you know, a long time. But the art loss registry is kind of a modern <clears throat> innovation and whatnot. Can you maybe lay out to the, the people listening here, like what the puzzle is, why it's such a difficult puzzle in, as you referred to it, the muddled property rights? Um, but also, um, you know, assurances that need to be made and and other things and how they tried to do it before the Art Loss Registry and then how the Art Loss Registry evolved to take care of the puzzle.
2: Indeed. A big question. Um, The Art Loss Register basically serves three groups of stakeholders. Um, One of them are the people who have lost something, either through theft, through expropriation, through looting in conflict times, perhaps even during colonial times, um, exchanges that happened at the point of a gun right. that people now feel uncomfortable about endorsing. And often, if you're talking about theft, also they're insurers because they've paid out on a loss. And so you have a big interest group that would like to make a claim um, on some property that is floating around somewhere in the art market that they can't by themselves locate you also have an interest group of reputable dealers and auction houses who don't want to be caught fencing stolen goods Mm. that does not look good it does not look good to be selling nazi looted art so they want to have a cheap and efficient way of saying, can I sell this in good faith? And then the third interest group is art investors. If you want to invest in a piece of art, you want it to be authentic, you want it to be good art, but you also don't want to end up trying to give it to um, Moma or the Metropolitan Museum or lend it to a blockbuster expi- exhibition, and then then turning back and saying, well, thanks, but no thanks, uh, Mr. Rockefeller. This is looted art. We feel uncomfortable about this. We couldn't possibly take it. So there are three groups of stakeholders who are looking for a way of finding out whether something. Is clean. It's 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 it, it, it's good to go, and there are different ways of finding out whether that is the case. and And the the traditional way, as you asked about, was was to look at the provenance. And the provenance, in that sense, is a root of title. Yeah, no. yeah. It solves the problem of authenticity if you can trace something back to the manufacturers, uh, the the makers' workshop, the maker's hand through every possible consensual sale through throughout history to the current owner. And unfortunately, that kind of blockchain type root of title almost never exists for anything but contemporary art. So the market was looking for a quick and dirty, cheap and cheerful way of saying, well, how can we sell something in good faith given that we don't know its history? And the art loss register came in with this new idea to say okay well you can sell it in good faith if nobody's actively looking for it because anyone who's actively looking for it would have known about the art loss register it will be registered with us Yeah. You know, we can't completely fill in all the gaps but at least we know nobody's looking for it therefore you can buy it in good faith if you buy something in good faith and you've done absolutely everything you can to discover whether this has got some encumbrances from the past, then most laws will give it to you after a period of three to five years. So, yeah. it's a transaction cost saving device.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. Do you? Uh, can you give us some idea of the magnitude of the problem of of fraudulent art and theft art? And, and other, you know, these kind of um um issues. Cause I mean it's such a um I mean I'm sure you've seen this too. There's been documentaries on, you know, markets in wine as well and how difficult it is for people to, you know, make sure that the wines are the wines that they say that they're buying and the quality and all the other kind of thing.
2: We see Unraveling equilibria in sub markets. So if something becomes really trendy, really fashionable, then fakes will start appearing big time. Right. And then either you need a new method to try and tell the far part fakes and forgeries from, from the real thing, or if you can't, then the market will collapse. So one market that, that has collapsed is the one for Cycladic statues, um, these Greek, very plain marble ones that, that we do, um, that, that really appeal to modern tastes. Um, unfortunately, you can't date stone. Well, it'll date to when it right. was formed <laughs> yeah. rather than when it was carved. And therefore, we can't tell apart the real ones from the fake ones. And therefore, unless you've got really good provenance for something,
3: right. you must
2: assume it's fake. That, that, that's, that That's interesting. In terms of stolen art, it's really difficult. Um, different people say different things, depending on whether they're trying to lobby for someone, lobby someone for, for state resources. Um, the art must register has 700,000 and more um, unique items on its register.
1: So there is um, huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, You lead your book with a fascinating story about a Cezanne and, and a bunch of other pieces or whatever. I, I, I want people to read the book, but like give them a sales pitch about this story because it's fascinating because it it's international. It's, 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 Deeply criminal maybe and and you know it has all these like shady characters and then not so shady cat- anyway, just yeah
2: yeah, so this is uh a group of seven paintings um that are stolen um from a family home uh in Boston Massachusetts, and they just disappear, they disappear for more than twenty years, and um police close their files but uh, a detective um, puts these onto the art loss register and um, over 20 years later, um, a uh, insurance company gets asked by some middleman whether they would insure these seven paintings or or one of these paintings initially um, to go from from Moscow um, to, to, to Switzerland. And the insurer, as I said, insurer is a big stakeholder in this. They yeah. said, "Is this clean?" And the loss Register says, "No, don't, don't, don't do anything. Put us in touch with these people."
3: Yeah.
2: And it gets very, very shady. They do not want to say who they are. They're in Russia. Um, <laughs> it could be they, they call themselves a Russian institution, which sounds horribly mafia-like, and <laughs> it becomes impossible to do anything and they said well we don't trust you anyway so there's a lot of trust issues around here um we don't we don't want to send somebody to authenticate the pro but the painting in the layer of the russian mafia how can you possibly convince us that it's a real thing are you just fobbing us off with a copy so they have to find a way of authenticating and also creating some sort of price for the return of these and um Russia is a no-go so eventually all seven paintings um appear in Switzerland um without any need for travel insurance Mm -hmm. and um it gets a little bit better but unfortunately the guy who's selling them doesn't want to reveal his identity and that makes it impossible to pay anything Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, they, they, they said, OK, well, all we can do is basically an exchange. You give us the most expensive painting; We give you the title to the others. And um, it's just a hugely interesting question of how do you make a contract mm-hmm. with somebody who doesn't want to reveal their identity and who is probably far too close to the criminal right. um, for comfort? And you can't pay you can't pay criminals because that would incentivize theft. Yeah. You can, certainly can't pay organized crime. So, so how do you make a contract with somebody
3: yeah. that doesn't
2: reveal their identity?
1: I think the story is uh, is, a, is a very telling one about economic life because it shows the constant need for adaptation and adjustment on multiple margins. As new information is revealed and people try to adapt and adjust and basically protect themselves against their natural distrust, but yet still realize the gains from trade that they're trying to pursue. And so I think it's a great story to begin the book about how it is that this uh, transaction cost reducing technologies have to be deployed on multiple margins to be able to get the underlying background for for trade. Absolutely right.
3: The
2: other thing that I find so interesting is the sort of choice of location of sale to take advantage of um, laws and law enforcement and lack of law enforcement in certain jurisdictions.
3: Right. But, of
2: course, you still have to ask your home jurisdiction if you're in Boston, you have to ask the United States and the FBI whether they're comfortable with you making a million-dollar payment, even if it's just 5 or 10% um, of the value of the asset. But if you're talking about a $30 million asset, yes, they might be very um, against the idea of, of, of you handing over money. Right. And then also, if you are handing over money, how do you know that they're going to follow up with delivery of the goods? So, right. Super interesting contracting problems
1: here. Yeah, I did think that this this uh, the way they worked it out there where the most valuable painting went and then the property rights to these other uh, six less valuable paintings were like given, that was like the exchange. I thought that was ingenious at some level that they figured out how to do that um, or, you know, pr- you know, and pursue that. So anyway, it was, it's just, um, it, it, to me, I, I mean, I think that one of the things in both your kidnap book and then in this one is that you give priority to the clever and creative agents within inside the model themselves, you know, because they're the ones that are, you know, given priority in the explanation because they're the ones coming up with all of these solutions, not the theorist imposing the order on the system. It's the system who's revealing the order in their interactions. And so I think that's really something else.
2: Yes, what I also like is that they make mistakes. Yes. That they're doing things that they would not have done with hindsight. That yes. there isn't a mastermind at the helm of this, steering a clear course through everything. But they've got these all these challenges thrown at them.
3: Yeah.
2: But they've got skin in the game, and they're certainly willing to listen to losses and... Yes. Um,
1: so I think in the shadow of the state or with the state or the way that Eleanor Ostrom used to put it, covenants with and without a sword. I think it's kind of fascinating in your story, because in the in the lost art story, in many ways, the the I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but the way I read it was that in many ways, the police just don't have an interest or the resources or the time to devote to this particular market. You see um, these private, for lack of a better word, private governance mechanisms arise up because the public governance mechanism is failing at some level or failing might be the wrong word, but inattentive or whatever. So it's not like when we normally say that I engage in exchange, but the shadow of the state is there to step in to fix it if somehow this exchange is in place because the shadow of the state isn't going to step in because they're just not interested or paying attention. Am I right in that interpretation or am I? Think I think you're, 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 you're absolutely right. So, so
2: there, there is, A, there is a massive enforcement gap. There, there, there is law, but it's not being enforced right. using public means. The second problem is that there is law, but there is laws because there's a global market and different countries define property rights in different ways. And it might be worth your while to clean the title off an object that isn't, its ownership isn't legally disputed in Europe, because, but you might want to sell it in New York at a later stage.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So having a title that will stand up in New York actually adds massive amounts of value to an artwork and that then creates an ability to satisfy both sides' claim. Right.
3: Yeah.
2: So you're unlocking value.
3: Yeah,
2: And I found that really yeah, interesting. Yeah. The third thing that I found so fascinating about the art market is that there is now a gap between the social norms that underpin property rights and the law in that, people have changed their attitudes towards looted and expropriated art and particularly to Nazi era theft. Yeah. So a law might say if you've bought it in good faith in the 1970s, in the nineteen eighties, before the availability of, of the Art Loss Register, before anyone thought about it, um, it's yours. You got secure title for this. And you can see that you might be an, somebody might be an innocent victim of a later claim against that property. But on the other hand, people are also uncomfortable with the idea that there are survivors of the Holocaust or or, 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 or their heirs who are just told, "Yes, that might have been your grandmother's. That might have been in her Berlin flat in in, in 1939."
3: But tough. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So so. The Art loss Register also inserts itself into that gap between what we feel is morally right and what is legally the law.
3: Yeah,
1: I thought it was fascinating. You tell the story in there of, or the possibility that in various instances, you know, people voluntarily, you know, give their assets back, you know, that they find out were stolen, even though they have the claim to hold and you know, various different ways in which they negotiate that. It started. I was wondering though how, you know, how long. Into our past, this is a more general question, which is you know how far in the past do we go to determine that the uh you know it's uh the, the, the that it's a rotten deal right or you know the the I can't remember the fruit of a whatever <laughs> I can't remember the phrase, but it, it's yes, like uh, the, uh, labor, uh,
2: you, you might say, well, yes, this house was built with slave labor
1: right. Yeah, this is what I was asking. So if you think about uh, you know, other atrocities uh besides, you know, the the Nazi Germany that confiscated people's artifacts or whatever. I'm pretty sure if you were probably looking at, you know, a Rembrandt or a Michelangelo that it's it's shifted, you know, from different conquests over history. And uh, you know, I'm thinking, for example, more recently, let's think about, you know, uh, you know, what might have happened in some areas, let's say, uh, you know, in the Middle East or whatever, where various pieces of art have probably switched hands, not because of exchange, but because of conquest or or military interventions or whatever.
2: Yes. Or subsistence looting.
1: Yes. And so what I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering, is there a, I mean, does that just go with our own sensibilities? The market adjusts and adapts based on what we consider morally outrageous or is there any kind of generalizable principle about that when the exchange is so far in the past not the exchange but the the theft or whatever so far in the past that there's a statute of limitations and then we just recognize the exchanges as they come later on
2: it's not an easy question to answer as as usual with your questions um i think going down the sort of moral outrage route is one the reason why this particular um issue has been so hot was the amount of money yeah that is in the kind of artworks that jewish people collected
3: right yeah yeah.
2: so if something becomes really fashionable then people will start asserting property rights and property claims on this because it's not worth fighting over.
3: Right.
2: Over something that has very little value.
3: Right. So, yeah, I mean, I I think think there is is is, a
2: natural, there there, there are certain areas where you you think, yes, the the, the moral case can be pushed, social norms can change, people will be more receptive. But on the other hand, um, looking at my book and looking at the amount of money that was needed to change people's minds about what is acceptable to own.
1: Right. Yeah, That's yeah. not
2: going to be worthwhile unless
1: it's, there's a lot,
2: there's, there's lot a of lot stuff. of, a lot of value at stake. And, and, and going back to this idea of actually you can add value by adding provenance to something.
1: Right. Um, I, I, uh, I, I read a, uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, I ended up by reading uh, a bunch of uh, um, intellectual biographies discussing, uh, you know, people that emerged out of uh, Germany or you know Vienna at the in the 1930s and what their life was like in the 20s prior to that and the pinnacle of that. So, for example, there's a a great book about Michael Polanyi, the the philosopher and scientist when he was working at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin and just, you know, what a pinnacle there. Einstein was there, Niels Bohr, all these, you know, it was like a a pinnacle of Western civilization and, and advancement of science and the arts and everything like that. And then within a decade, you know, it's all just torn asunder by barbarism and everything like that. So the remnants of that are going to be the highest forms of art and, and all that other stuff that you're just talking about that have extreme value and the same thing in Vienna. Um, and so it is, it is, a it is a different kind of problem than you would have in, in most other areas, I guess. Um,
2: well there there is more Nazi looted art and, um, there there is the possibility of, of, um, old instruments, um, be becoming one of those, those frontiers, um, with, uh, uh Roma and sinti communities losing valuable instruments um yeah. through Nazi era theft
3: right yeah yeah but yeah you
2: you 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 need the money behind to create the to create these private institutions
1: what do you see as the commonalities between the kidnap market as an engineer now right, and so you're trying to underline these underlying dynamics so rather than the particulars of the cases. What are the underlying governing dynamics that are associated with markets that are forged within a periods of extreme distrust of the parties? You know, it's it's there's no there's there's no the, you enter into the interaction. I distrust you, you know, you know you distrust me, and and we have to find some way. I mean, Oliver Williamson described a mutual hostage taking scheme and commitment devices years ago to address the kidnapping problem and um, as an example, but I'm I'm wondering what generalizable dynamics you see coming out of your own work.
2: The link between the two is interesting because uh, one of the people who invented the institutional architecture around resolving kidnaps and found that the company control risks then went away and founded the Art Loss Register. Oh. So he had the technology for resolving ransom type hostage um, scenarios. But with art, he didn't have a hostage scenario because stolen art could be freely sold on the market. So what he created was the Art Loss Register that prevents the sale of stolen art. In the market, in the open market, because nobody's going to touch anything that the Art Loss Register flags up as uh, being disputed. And therefore, he creates a hostage situation with a yes, you are the possessor of this, but you're not the morally legitimate. Oh. Or, even the legal owner of it, right. well, you might be the legal owner, but we don't believe the moral legitimacy of your claim. You might have to compensate someone else, so he's forcing people into a negotiation with the former owner to clean up the property right, possibly even hand it back, or if necessary, call the police it's still within um, the statute of limitation, call the police yeah, yeah. and 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 have it seized,
1: yeah um. What do you see as the, again, this is the engineer I'm tapping into now, the evolution of modern technologies as aiding in this process? You know, again, like Block plain, i I understand what you said earlier that you don't have that kind of clean property rights except for very contemporary art. But how do you see modern technologies aiding in the ability of the uh, you know lost art, art loss registry to be able to serve its function or some other alternative competitor to that uh, clearing house function, I guess that, that is that how you would describe it? I mean, it's sort of a clearing house function it,
3: Yes, uh, absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: the art loss register looks like a monopolist, and we might get worried about that. I think of them as a contestable monopoly.
3: Yeah,
2: I'm always looking at evolutionary competition. So if somebody comes up with a better idea, then they can compete with the Art Loss Register. Um, So one potential frontier that I I would see would be artificial intelligence and using image-matching techniques rather than real people looking at photographs off a stolen object and the object as it is now and say, are these two the same? Are they likely the same?
3: Yeah, you're
1: matching technologies. That that's may- right. Yeah. So so I think there is, is the a yeah, yeah, you get rid of the judgment of some guy in a room, the so-called expert or whatever, right? Because you can that's, have the... Yeah.
2: That's right. So I think there's always room for, 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 for innovation if you can make the blockchain thing work. I mean, there's also the possibility of making a huge investment and creating a positive register of right. things to say, this is, this is the good stuff. Yeah. And you can buy and sell that without any concern about either it's authenticity or, or, or the property rights. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody could make that kind of product work.
1: So I'm, I'm sure you've seen it, a, a movie, Thomas crown affair. I haven't. <laughs> Because it's exactly on this. Right. I mean, she's an insurance person that comes in to investigate the stolen art and then they have to track it down. They have the forgers that are involved as well as the stolen art. So it had a lot of those things. I mean, I'm there's the old movie and then the remake. And I've seen both of them. And when I again, when I was reading your book, I all I kept on doing was thinking about, oh, like this makes sense that out of you know these things that I've seen before. So I was just wondering if if. Um, you had seen that, the Thomas Crown Affair, yeah. Um, so one of the most interesting things that I was exposed to uh, that I didn't expect to hear was actually Vernon Smith, when I was a graduate student, uh, told me and other, and other graduate students to read Temple Grandin, all right, and to study what she was doing in terms of, uh, she, you know, was, is, a someone who, um, you know, is, is self-defined, uh, as someone who has, uh, you know, autism or at least on the spectrum. And so as a result, she couldn't, she thinks in pictures rather than the way other people do. And the idea was, is that because she was poor at picking up social clues, she had to learn in an explicit way what many of the rest of us learned tacitly. And so therefore, she was able to then have a better understanding of the social clues or the tacit dimensions of our interactions because she had to think them out explicitly. And when I read your work, I'm thinking about this relationship. There's an economist at Brown named Glenn Lowry and he likes to use the mantra at the moment of relations before transactions, relations before transactions. And that is connected up to trust and these other kinds of things, which are the underbelly of a lot of the way we exchange with one another. And you're dealing in markets in which that is missing, but has to somehow be constructed in in some sense, right? At least at a minimum level, it has to be constructed so that the, it can go... And sometimes it's not trust between the actors, but trust in an institution that serves as a proxy to, for the actors. How how has this led you to thinking about those kind of questions about the relationship between the underlying social mores and, and, and relations that we forge and then the transactions that are built on top of it? Or do the transactions build the relationships or do they reflect the relate? I guess. Yeah.
2: I'm really pleased with that question because it's something that I haven't really thought about much before, but it is something that's nascent in, in these stories. So in general, the art market thrives on trust relationships. It's people know each other. They know the collectors, they know what's in each other's collections. they fiercely guard their reputations as collectors as dealers as auction houses so it's a it's a very tightly networked market they meet each other at art fairs they meet each other at dinners they show off each other's their, their collections tip to, to each other um, they lend to travelling blockbuster exhibitions. So everyone wants their name out there and and, 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 and wants to be seen as somebody who's, who's a great collector and, and has top-class assets. So there is that aspect of the market. Um, the stories that I tell, and they're the ones that are The interesting ones um, from the Art Loss Register's archives, the ones that I found most fascinating, are the ones where people reject and resist having the relationship Mm -hmm. as well as the transaction. They don't want to enter into that transaction, or they might want to enter into that that transaction, but they're resisting having a relationship. So we talked about the Bakun case where somebody says, I want to have a transaction with you, but I don't want to say who I am. And you end up with months and months and months of going around saying, "Well, we can't have a trade relationship with you unless we know who you are. At least we have some handle on who you are not. Like, for example, the thief,
3: yeah, Yeah, yeah. or a
2: fence, or or the Russian mafia. So it's that's a really." interesting way of looking at the book about people who don't want to have a relationship and and yet somehow resolve things and one super interesting way of trying to avoid having a relationship but really expensive and terrible way of doing a transaction is to hide behind a lawyer
3: right
2: so I, looking at my book on your question, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there's a really interesting thing going on with, with, with lawyers facilitating transactions where people don't want to trust each other, in fact, wrecking any relationship,
3: yeah,
2: uh, siphoning off the money, the value out of that transaction. So at the end, the only people who benefit are the lawyers.
1: Yeah. yeah, 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 that's interesting. Um yeah, no, I mean, I don't and
2: even... That's, that's, what, that's why my stories sometimes take 10 years or more to resolve. Right. Because people don't want a relationship. The way the Art Loss Register works, when it works, is by um, the Art Loss Register specialists, in particularly Julian Radcliffe, going in there, knocking heads together and saying, like, can we just resolve this? Yeah. Based on shared norms, based on... Former owners, not making a ridiculously high claim. Let's look at how we can settle this. How we can unlock the value. If people are happy to do that, it can be done in minutes.
3: Right. Yeah. But it's
1: building and, that. It's building that mutual trust to be able to unlock it. That's mm-hmm. that's
2: that's correct.
1: Yeah.
2: And I mean that there are trust relationships to be built uh, that, that that they can already rely on. So. A collector will have a relationship with the auction house. The auction house might be a shareholder in the art loss register. And on the other side is an insurer. So you you can see how this can work extremely well. But the fascinating relationships are the ones where where there's not a relationship, where the transaction gets filtered through lawyers who have every incentive.
1: So the, the evolution of this tight network, in the art in high end art market that's you know taken centuries to to build right i mean that's something that you can see going back a long time this this tight networks um are there new you mentioned about evolution as we develop new technologies and 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 wealth expands Beyond, you know, uh, you know, do we see challenges to that network or expansions of that network? So there's more nodes. So maybe they would be more impersonal nodes that would have to have the institution would serve the function that reputation once served. Does that make any sense? Most of that
2: that institutional innovation. don't think is on property rights but it's on on the authenticity side
3: yeah okay
2: because this is it's kind of a lemons problem but it isn't a lemons problem because i might think that i have got a rembrandt
3: and i might want
2: to send my sell my rembrandt to you and you're also quite happy for it to be a rembrandt because if it's a rembrandt then that will um increase your social status as well so neither of us might be aware whether or not this is a fake or a forgery
3: right and
2: but we still might want to have that reality check
3: right you might
2: insist on that reality check and just say is it of the right period um and, and and yeah so so there are all these new nodes because it has been in the past very easy to smuggle additional artifacts into the historical record right and um yeah i mean and then there, there are some things where possibly we'll never be able to tell whether they they're, they're, they're right or wrong whether uh, uh savata mundi was painted by leonardo and if so which bit
1: right yeah 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 i mean i yeah i mean that's um that's another question too is that um you know you the you know you trained uh, if, if I understand this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, the these famous artists, also other people were apprenticing under them, who were also learning to, you know, become famous artists themselves. And when they were apprenticing, they sometimes, you know, were part of the projects that became famous for the main artist, even though it was done in some sense ontologically it was done by somebody else other than you know, that. <laughs> correct
3: yeah and so the master like would paint in the eyes time, or the yeah.
2: hands or, or the yeah. face and everything yeah. else would be by somebody else yeah yeah so there, there, there is certainly that that, that amount of uh, confusion in the market and on the authenticity side there is huge steps have been taken in in recent years uh, on, on dating technologies and then but it's a dynamic game so if you know what the what the experts are looking for then you put it in
1: <laughs> yeah um so the subtitle of your your book on lost art is the you know uh the the art lost registry uh i think it says art archi- volume 1 <laughs> so <laughs> is there a volume 2 that is currently being written or what is the what is the story there are lots more stories
2: and the stories are good yeah The question is how much can we learn from them as economists? Right. So I haven't made up my mind whether I'm going to write volume two. I might. I will have a look at the stories, but I'm I'm after high steep learning curves.
3: Right. And
2: I have been swept up into a project on cybercrime and extortive cybercrime, drawing again on my or my past history of, of ransom negotiations.
3: Oh yeah. The so way that like insurance.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the way that insurance shapes the incentives of criminals, which it also does with the Art Loss Register. So at the moment, um I'm I'm absolutely fascinated um uh, by that. I I I feel very excited by it because with uh kidnap for ransom I had 80 years worth of Um, evolutionary competition leading to a really sophisticated system with lost art I was looking at a 30-year period of building something that actually works and is financially sound and sustainable into the future and um, with cybercrime I'm looking at evolutionary competition as she happens yeah yeah and, and and that's that's really brilliant. Um I like the idea that there are no masterminds, institution designers, but, but that people are making mistakes and learning from mistakes and making losses and adjusting what they're doing and talking to each other and and, and seeing how people get to work together, how, how you make collective action happen. Yeah, that's yeah. just that's just absolutely fascinating.
1: You won't be surprised by this, but, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s, 2003, I think, um, I was part of a project at the law school on cyber security. And I edited a special issue of a journal. And Pete Leeson and Chris Coyne have a piece in there about using hackers to police and cybercrime. I was wondering if you had seen that and because it's just exactly this kind of idea about how it is that you are engaged in a kind of a race. And the last thing you want to do in that race is rely on a behemoth of a bureaucracy to challenge a nimble and entrepreneurial adversary. And yet, just like what we saw recently, you know, our our current administration, uh, governmental administration, is trying to call on the international community to form a, bureau- a behemoth bureaucracy to fight against cyber you know, ransomware and that kind of stuff, as opposed to nimble entrepreneurial solutions that might come out of the various financial industry or other kind of places. So it is fascinating to look at. And we do have the horse race going on between governmental solutions and then private mechanism solutions and you're right in the middle of it writing about it i guess that's pretty fascinating well at the
2: moment we're seeing this evolutionary competition because we finally have a hard market so now insurers are able to up the game and and, and And say we're only going to insure on certain conditions where previously that was not possible so for years, everyone just piled into this market and didn't care about the losses because they wanted the market share. And now this is coming home to roost and, and, and the market is, is getting worried about it. And and this is the time when, when people are experimenting. And um, if you go in too heavy-handedly with, 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 with regulation, um, then you might be cutting short
1: yeah the a really
2: is. important process of finding out what actually works and as as i said it's a dynamic threat
1: yeah so we had uh you know a case um earlier this year in uh, on the east coast where they affected the oil pipelines right and and so can you give a couple other uh you know uh, examples that you're looking at let's say in Europe or whatever that that some people might not be aware of because this is a fascinating puzzle i mean it's uh biden and in, in when he met with the g7 tried to make it be the next big international security issue right so
2: yeah what i what i find interesting is that this has actually been insurable for so long
3: yeah
2: so it's all come to a head so there, there, there's been massive criminal um innovation on this and initially um paying a ransom actually quite often resolved the problem relatively cheaply.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but of course, criminals innovate, criminals um realize that they they can actually cause big systemic disruption. And that that's not something where we pay five hundred dollars to resolve the problem. We we're now talking million dollar ransoms. So so the, the the entire system is 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 being being called into question. And um but there are different approaches. Yeah. And, and and the question is can we can we how do we create a product that works? Um, All right, so in this in this in this new 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 world of massive criminal innovation and of course the, the international diplomacy issue is how do you get at the um of the cyber criminals that sit in jurisdictions that won't extradite them to the United States to be tried. So economics of crime says if you don't have any leverage in terms of some probability of something bad happening to the criminals, yeah, they're not going to stop.
1: Yeah. yeah. So if my memory is correct, you came, you know, several years ago and, and talked to us about your kidnap work. And then you came in February of, of, 2020 as you said and talked about your uh you know uh lost art uh you know work so now we have to have you come back in 2022 2023 or sometime to make sure that you let us know what the latest is on cyber crime uh over cyber- like a shot yeah yeah no that that's awesome on um so anyway thank you very much i had a bonus question but you already answered it with regard to this cyber crime stuff, which I was unfamiliar that you were working on. And that is just so fascinating. And also, I think, you know, you're really, um, hopefully, I think, graduate students in our program, who are very interested in this question of these underlying uh, governing dynamics of self-governance, that they, you know, see in your work. Uh, not only the insights about those mechanisms, but an exemplar about how to pursue that kind of research. So I'm hoping that we have some dissertations that will eventually be written that could be inputs into your next project beyond even cyber uh, security questions. So anyway, it's it's always a joy talking to you. So thank you very much for taking the time.
2: Well, thank you for your questions. I really like the one on on relationships and, 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 and trade, and I think I'll think a lot more about what it is that, that lawyers are doing and to what extent what they're doing is uh, deliberately um, sabotaging <laughs> relationships so that they can benefit uh, from uh, trade and uh, transactions.
1: Uh, All right. So well, that's,
2: that's real food for thought there. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. It's always a great to talk with you. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.